So we're in the series on John's Gospel, and we are looking at various people's encounters with Jesus. And we just heard John chapter 4 read. Thank you so much, Anne. That was a long reading. Here's the thing about John 4. It comes right after John 3. Oh, you guys, man, you are so smart this morning. Wow, you just move the times earlier and everyone's like with it. So, and in John 3, we looked at Jesus' encounter with who? Nicodemus. Uh, How did we characterize Nicodemus? What sort of social status was he? High status, rich old white guy, had it all. Uh, How did Jesus interact with Nicodemus? I said he basically gave him a punch in the face. Theologically, he really did. So Nicodemus had it all. Uh, my favorite phrase, you can take this home and use it yourself. As Mike Tyson's trainer said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And um, that's what happened to Nicodemus. He had a plan. It was working for him. He was rich. He was powerful. He was male. And then Jesus punched him in the face and said, everything you've done isn't worth anything. You need to be born again. John 4, Jesus deals with someone who's very, very different, doesn't he? What's she like? Well, let's think. She's a Samaritan. And you go, boo, those Samaritans. Well, no, you don't, because it doesn't really... If if you were good Jewish people living in the first century, you'd go, boo, those Samaritans, right? You'd be like, "They they were outcasts. She wasn't just a Samaritan, she was a woman. Now, you know, you wouldn't go, boo, women, would you? Not at all. But if you were a... A religious rabbi, an orthodox religious rabbi in first century Israel, or a Hasidic rabbi in Jerusalem today, you'd never be seen in public with a woman who wasn't your wife, and even your wife would walk behind you, lest people think there might be some funny business going on between you and your wife in public. I mean, it's a little strange. So, she's a Samaritan, she's a woman. She's, here's what the rabbis in the first century said about Samaritan women. They said, Samaritan women are menstruants from birth. I say, why on earth would they say that? Well, here's the thing. In the Hebrew scriptures, a woman was ritually unpure, unable to go to the temple and worship God and connect with God if she was menstruating. She had to wait seven days after uh, her menstruation and then go through a mikvah, a ritual bath, and then she could be cleansed and enter into God's presence. So the rabbis said, Samaritan women from birth were ritually impure, unclean, cut off, separated from God. She's also not someone who's at the very pinnacle of society, is she? She's had five uh, marriages. Now, this is uh, first century serial monogamy. Uh, Divorce and remarriage in the first century was not that hard. Uh, But the rabbis did tend to limit it to three divorces and remarriage. So you didn't want to get, you know, that was sort of, anything beyond that was a bit much. So she was up to number five, and the woman she was, and the man she was, and Roselle, the woman she was living with, no, the man she was living with, um, uh, wasn't, she wasn't married to. So she's low status, she's on the margins, she's completely cut off from Israel, she's cut off from God, and Jesus just talks to her so differently the way he talks to Nicodemus. He uses different metaphors and imagery for salvation. He's gentle, he's strong, completely different, which just says right up the front, our God loves everyone where they are. He doesn't start with an idealized picture of who we are. He doesn't treat us all the same. Our God loves us as we are and moves towards us uh, to connect with us 
in our particular circumstance and situation. So that's the first point, and it's a very important one to make because it sets all the rest of this up. And what we're going to see uh, in this story, we're going to see three things. Uh, There's actually a whole lot more in the story. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. Um, And if you want to read it, uh, Cindy Williams is writing a novel based on the story of this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So she's an author and she's busy working on that. So ask Cindy about her novel and say, when can I read it? And I'm glad she's not here because, you know, she could correct me uh, because she's done all this research. But uh, um, first thing we're going to see, this is a story about water, isn't it? Uh, And secondly, it's a story about worship. And thirdly, and we're going with alliteration here, it's a story about witness. Did I hear someone say that? Water, worship, and witness. If you read the Bible, or you go to a a resource like Google water in the Bible, you'll discover that water is an incredibly central and significant metaphor in the Bible. All the way through, right from the start, uh, it's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And uh, this, is what Je- this is how Jesus starts with this woman. She turns up, he turns up at this well and uh, asks her for a drink. And um, she goes, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then Jesus gives this incredible answer to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And and she hasn't quite got that he's jumped into this massive 2,000 year, well, 1,500 year sort of metaphor uh, historical use of this metaphor of water and is really driving a... So he says, well, how how are you going to get this water, right? Um, And uh, then Jesus said, listen... Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. First thing we see that that the water metaphor addresses here is is the issue uh, of our thirst, the woman's thirst. Uh, She is thirsty. She's thirsty for water, but Jesus says, actually, you're thirsty. Uh, Your thirst will never be met just by the water here. You're always going to need more and more water. It's never going to. And so this is true of us. We are all thirsty, by which I mean everything that we look to in this world to meet our needs, to meet that thirst in our souls, doesn't ever really quench our thirst. You see, uh, we're not just made of earth. We're also made of heaven. And so the things of this earth alone, as we consume them, won't actually meet our deep soul thirst. Think about it. Isn't this true for you? I certainly know it's true for me. The things that I think, if I get this, if I get this house, my thirst will be met. And you discover you move into the house and you wake up the next day, you're still thirsty. Think, if I get this relationship, then I won't be thirsty anymore. And then you get that relationship and you discover you're still thirsty. So if I get this money, I won't be thirsty. But you discover no matter how much money you have, you wake up and you're still thirsty. 
we're all still thirsty. No matter what achievements we have, no matter what we get in life, we're still thirsty because our thirst is not, because we're made not just of earth but also of heaven, our thirst in us is a, is a heavenly thirst that nothing in this world can really address. There's an eternal, endless thirst. Now, how do we respond to that? How do we deal with that experience? Well, if we're successful, as many of us are, and we've achieved lots of things, and then we discover they don't meet our needs, our strategy is we blame the things for not meeting our thirst. Well, you know, I bought the wrong house. So if I just put in a new kitchen, then my thirst would be met. And you put in a new kitchen, well, that didn't work. Oh, if I, if I, it's the bathrooms, I put in a new bathroom. Well, it's because I don't have a swimming pool. So we blame the things. Or you, if you're successful, you, you climb the corporate ladder, you get to wherever you want to get to, and you discover you're still thirsty. So what do you do? You blame your job, you change jobs. You maybe go, I'm 45, and now I need meaning and purpose in life, so I'm going to step out of the corporate world, and I'm going to go to the not-for-profit world. And that, that'll meet my, because I'm blaming, you know, the work is not what's meeting my thirst. If you're really rich and successful, uh, you, you, you trade in spouses quite regularly as well. You're able to do that like wealthy, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm still thirsty because I met this and married this gorgeous person and I'm still thirsty, so I'll just trade up on a new model. And you're still thirsty. Okay, so but for, for some of us, that doesn't work because we're not that successful uh, at accumulating and getting these things. So then the strategy can be, well, I don't blame the things. What do I blame for my ongoing thirst? I blame me. I'm the problem. It's because I'm not smart enough. I'm not hardworking enough. I'm not lucky enough. I'm deficient. That's why I'm still thirsty. I just keep going into the wrong jobs. I just am always dissatisfied. I just chose the wrong partner. I just can't set boundaries well enough. I, I'm the problem. There's a third option. If, if we get tired of blaming ourselves, we, we don't blame the things, we don't blame ourselves, we sort of blame the universe or a more particular, uh, some, some more particular actors in the universe and there's a whole industry to help us with this. Who do we blame for our ongoing thirst? Well, our parents. Don't we? Oh my goodness. And there's a whole industry of people who will charge you, uh, you know, $200 for a 50-minute session to help you blame your parents for your ongoing thirst, right? Uh, I, I see this all the time. I, um, I kid you not. I've, I've, had, I've, I've been working, doing pastoral counseling with people in their 70s and 80s who are still blaming their parents for their ongoing thirst. Now, you, you might laugh um, because you're successful enough to just blame your, you know, your career or your house, but, you know... Some of us are still blaming our parents, and they deserve it, right? Cheapest. You should see my parents. It's terrible. There's a fourth option. There's a fourth option. Why is that so funny? There's a fourth option. You are laughing at me. I know you're laughing at me. I clearly understand that. The fourth option is we... Uh, which we don't often explore, we can blame our separation from the eternal river of life. We can blame our separation from God, the source of that heavenly river that meets our deepest thirst. And that is the real reason why we're thirsty. And uh, until we understand that, 
we're going to be like that Samaritan woman, just confused and going, but hang on, this isn't going to work. I'm going to be thirsty again and again and again and again. Uh, Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah puts it. And this is a verse that changed my life. I kid you not. I was 19 years old at uh, medical school in Cape Town, and a fellow called Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, uh, came to Cape Town, and he was doing the seminar, and um, I expected his psychologist, he'd help me to blame my parents, um, and uh, I didn't need much help with that. And Larry Crabb stood up, and he said this from Jeremiah chapter 2. He said, "This this is what's gone wrong with God's people, with us. My people have committed two sins. Firstly, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And secondly, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, uh, this may not, you know, when you hear the word cistern, what do you think of? You typically think of toilets. Okay, so they are not building toilets in the desert. This is not, you know, this comes later with aid and development organizations, you know, digging toilets. This is cisterns in the ancient world were great big holes that you dug in the ground that you lined with rocks and then you, you uh, clad with clay and you made them waterproof and they were these massive uh, cisterns, holes in the ground in which you stored the water to keep you alive. The greatest tragedy that could befall a village was when their cistern cracked. And when you went in in the middle of the summer and you looked in your cistern to go and get water and a crack had developed and there was no water, what would happen to your village? Well, you would die. You literally, if you couldn't find another village who would give you water, you and your family would die. And Jeremiah says, this is, this is a picture of us spiritually. We've cut ourselves off from God, the source of all this living water, and then we engage in this mindlessly, endlessly frustrating and spiritually dangerous task of building, digging broken cisterns. The broken cisterns, for me as a 19-year-old listening to this, I thought, I had thought if I'm successful, if I get a girlfriend, and if I get into medical school, and I do what my mom and my grandfather wanted, then I would find life. And all I discover was medical school was a broken system. Relationships are a broken system. They leak water. And when you most need it, you've, you've spent all your life constructing this thing, this success, this relationship, this career, whatever. When you most need it, you go in to look at it to get water for your soul. You discover it's empty. That's why we're thirsty. According to the Bible, that's why we're thirsty. Because the things of this world that we invest so massively in only meet the thirst of the part of us that is made of earth and doesn't meet the thirst of the part of us that's made of heaven. And so we, are, we forsake God, the spring of living water, and we dig broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And in this context, with these words ringing in his ears, do you see how radical it is what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am this living water. I am this source of life from heaven above that can meet your deepest needs. Now, uh, if one of the reasons is that we're thirsty, is we're separated from God, there's there's another beautiful part of the metaphor of water that addresses just this. Because water is also, in the Bible all about purification. It's about washing us clean. We looked at this last week from Ezekiel 36. But water is about washing us clean. And in particular, 
Living water, this little phrase, living water, is water in Hebrew thought that is pure, that comes from heaven, that washes us spiritually clean and makes us fit to connect with God. So uh, let me give you a little lesson in rabbinic thought. Uh, and let's talk a bit about mikvahs. So a mikvah, which we alluded to in the start, a mikvah is a ritual bath that uh, in, even today in rabbinic Judaism, a ritual bath made of living water. Now there's a difference between living water and dead water in Hebrew thought. Living water is water that has been untouched by human hands, that has come straight from heaven. So it's rainwater that is collected from heaven and then stored in a, in a tub And then you, when you need to be cleansed from your ritual impurity, you immerse yourself head to toe in this living water and you're then able to connect with God again. Now the most common way we think of this or it's experienced in Jewish culture today is around the issues of family purity and in particular menstruation. So as I alluded to at the start, in Jewish thought, a woman is ritually impure That is, she cannot connect with God while she's menstruating or for seven days after she's menstruated. So uh, she has to be, uh, so she menstruates, waits seven days, goes and cleans up physically and then has it, goes to the mikvah and has and is symbolically cleansed so she can then worship God. Now we think this is all about women, but actually uh, men in uh, rabbinic thought, particularly even today, Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox men, are in and out of mikvahs all the time because we get, we get uh, made ritually impure by any number of things. And so men are washing all the time in Hebrew thought because they need to be, you know, before you read Torah, before you say your prayers, before you go to shul, uh, all these sorts of things it's, we need because there's this deep awareness of the impurity that needs to be cleansed by living water. Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to give you living water that will meet your thirst to connect you to the living God. And this living water is going to cleanse you from the inside. It's going to flow from within and change you. You're going to get an internal mikvah of the heart that will make you permanently clean. Isn't that extraordinary? Here's a beautiful thing that you might not know. That he, there's a, a midrash, a rabbinic commentary on Genesis uh, after Adam, so the, the rabbis tell us, after Adam left the garden, he's excluded from the garden. What does he do? He goes and he sits in the, in the river flowing from the garden as an act of repentance and purification so that he can regain access to the purity of the garden. He has a mikvah in the river flowing from the garden so he can be made pure. And Jesus says, that river... That river at the heart of the universe, that river of life, he says, I'm going to put it in your heart. Oh, you ritually impure from birth Samaritan woman. Your thirst that you've had that has been met in a whole succession of men, I'm going to meet that thirst and I'm going to meet it by changing you from the inside. I'm going to reconnect you with your God. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that wonderful? Now this leads immediately though you might think it's a little weird, to a discussion about worship. So the woman says to him, she changes, um, she changes tack, and uh, here's what you need to know about the Samaritans. They, they had adopted a, like a free market approach to religion. So the Jews, they'd split from the Jews around the 8th century, 
and uh, they were separated and they decided we're not going to have to we're not going to go to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem go to the temple there we're going to make our own temple in Mount Gerizim so they did they said we'll, we'll do our own thing who needs the Jews we can worship God in our own way and uh, this woman I think realizes Jesus is making in this comment to provide living water he is making an extraordinarily profound claim to be God himself to be able to do for her what only God could do. So she asks the real question, well, hang on, where are we going to worship? How are we going to connect with God? Because that's what worship was about, right? You went to Jerusalem symbolically to connect with God, or if you're a Samaritan, you went to Mount Gerizim to connect with God. And um, Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you're not going to worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What is Jesus saying? Well, here's what you need to understand. A bit of revision for the last two Sundays, a bit of a test. When you see this phrase, a time is coming, what does it refer to? In fact, the, the NIV, actually it's consistently the hour is coming. And in John's gospel, what does the hour refer to? always refers to the cross, to Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus is saying, listen, a time is coming. My death and resurrection is coming. And when that comes, guess what? You're not going to worship on Mount Gerizim. You're not going to worship in Jerusalem. You're going to worship. You're going to connect with God. What? Through me. You don't go there. You don't go there. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know what? You can worship God anywhere. You can go and Go to the beach or go to the mountains and just worship God wherever. No, he's saying, not in Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, but you're going to worship me. You're going to worship God through me because of my hour that has come. Now you might say to yourself, worship? That's weird. That's this weird religious, why? What, what is worship? Why do we do it? Isn't it? It's some strange religious thing, isn't it? But stop and think about it. Worship is going on around us all the time, isn't it? So the root, the old English word behind worship is worship, to ascribe worth to something. Uh, And the Greek word here is proskuneo, to fall down on your face and acknowledge the transcendent greatness and worth of the king or the object of of your worship. Uh, we are ascribing worth to things all the time. So you see an object, you make a judgment about how valuable it is, and then you let that judgment shape your response to it. That's worship, right? Uh, I heard this story from Tim Keller. It illustrates this perfectly. Imagine for a moment, uh, your great-grandma left you a necklace. And, uh, you know, the estate was divided up, and you got this dusty old necklace and you thought what a ripoff you know your other siblings got other stuff and they were like man you know it's all I got and so you take the crummy old costume jewelry and you throw it in the back drawer and you you forget about it and then you know 10 years later uh, you've got a friend comes around for dinner and your friend is a specialist in antique jewelry and you're telling the story of this old necklace in your grandma and your friend goes oh I'd really be interested to see it and you go I don't know where it is you go upstairs and you scrabble around and oh they're you know in, in your undie drawer down the back, there's a bit of costume jewelry. You pull it out and you bring it downstairs. And you bring it out and your, your friend looks at it and he looks intrigued. And so he goes to his briefcase and gets his loop out because, you know, you never know when you're going to have to examine, you know, jewelry, do you? So he gets his loop out. 
He looks at it, and he's, at this point, he's, he's absolute, you can see something's going on for him. It's just so intensely looking at this, studying it, looking at it, turning it around. And you're looking at him, and eventually you go, well, what do you think? And he puts it down, and he puts his loop down, and he looks, and he says, well, this is an extraordinary example of French jewelry from the court of Louis XIV. And you go, how much is it worth? Says, well, depending on the day, 10 or 15 million dollars. Now, you've always had that object. You just didn't describe it much worth. Now, suddenly someone's told you what it's really worth. Can you imagine what your mind's going to be doing? <laughs> Shopping. You beauty. There's my retirement. I can quit work. I can pay off the mortgage. I can pay off my kids. I can, you know, <laughs> pay off the in-laws. I, my, your life is now changed because you've understood the worth of this object. And then your friend says to you, well, actually, you know what? Uh, you, you really need to get it professionally cleaned and restored. And you go, oh, okay, how much is that going to cost? Oh, about $5,000 to get it done professionally. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, are you kidding me? $5,000 on a piece of jewelry? Not a chance. You'll go, oh, of course, you beauty, because if I spend five grand cleaning it, I'll get another $5 million at auction, because it'll sparkle and look lovely, right? Now, when you thought it was a piece of custom jewelry, a piece of costume jewelry that was worthless, if your friend had said to you, well, this is a piece of costume jewelry, it's a lovely example of, you know, early 20th century fakery, and it's probably worth about 200 bucks, but if you spent five grand, you could get it cleaned, what would you do? You'd be like, as if. It's all relative. Now you understand the worth of the piece of jewelry. You go, there's nothing's too great a cost to spend on this bit of jewelry because I understand what it's worth. That's worship. Do you understand the value? You let it change your life. It puts everything else in perspective. That's what this woman does. She understands the worth of Jesus. This is the man who can meet my deepest needs, who can reconnect me with God. And everything has changed as a result of that. Isn't it? When you see how infinitely valuable Jesus really is, it profoundly changes her. And the most extraordinary change in her is this, and it takes us to our third point. She becomes a witness. She's someone who has no status, no influence in her community. And as a result of her encounter with Jesus, she goes back to her village and says, she becomes the spiritual leader of her village. She says to the men, oh, you learned Samaritan men, come, come, you've got to come meet Jesus. I've met this guy. And oh my goodness, what a guy. You've got to meet him. Change your life. She's a witness. Now, um, you might think, well, there's no way on God's green earth I'm ever going to witness to anyone about Jesus. <laughs> I, I like Jesus. He's pretty good. I like church. But I'm not going to tell anyone about Jesus because that's just weird. And that's just arrogant. Now, it is true, sometimes people telling other people about Jesus can do it in an awfully offensive and arrogant way. That's true. But listen, 
we are all witnessing all the time to things, aren't we? We find something that matters to us greatly, that we ascribe great worth, and we tell other people about it. You go to see a great movie, and you tell people about the movie. Wow, just all this... You know, you, you come to the inner west of Sydney and you, you witness about your latest coffee shop. Well, you know, I've just found this amazing coffee. They serve the single origin coffee that you get from the poo of a monkey in Borneo that's eaten the beans and, you know, then they wash it all and they, and they grind it and it's made by a barista with a beard this long and short hair and he's got to have extra skinny jeans and he does it just right. It's this amazing coffee. You've got to come and drink this coffee. It'll change your life. You've never had a drink that's come from the poop of a, you know, a monkey in Borneo before, but this will change everything for you. Like we witness all the time, don't we? That's what we do. I've met this wonderful person. You know, eHarmony's working for me. You've got to come meet him. We just do that. So that is all it is. When you find someone or something that really matters to you, it's just a human inclination to tell others about it. It just flows. And that's what this woman does. It just flows. And they come to Jesus, and they come to believe, and they go, he really is the savior of the world. So, her experience of Jesus as the living water, to meet her deepest thirst, to purify her, leads her to worship, leads her to be a witness. The question for you and for me is, How's that going to happen for us? If it hasn't already. And if it has, how are you going to keep that happening, right? Well, I want to take you to, to the last place in John's Gospel where this metaphor of water is used. And we'll find here, and I'll try and get through it without crying, we'll find here the answer to this question of how it's going to change us, right? What will it require, what will it take for you and for me to have this kind of an encounter with Jesus? Jesus is hanging on the cross and later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The source of eternal living water became thirsty for you so that your thirst could be met by him. That's it. The Son of God, who from all eternity was pouring living water into this world, who had never been separated from his Father, who had always lived a life of complete, absolute purity, this God himself hanging on a cross, which is a place of complete impurity, a place of absolute estrangement from God, this The Son of God is thirsty for you. He takes the thirst of your separation from God and my separation from God on himself. And he takes your impurity, 
your defilement, all the mess and all the shame and all the brokenness in your soul, he takes that onto himself. He becomes your sin on the cross. He says, I am thirsty. And then he says it's finished. His thirst is the end of his work to give you living water. So let me ask you, do you know, really know, the wonder of the living water of the universe becoming thirsty for you so that your thirst could be met by him? Has it really changed you? Do you see this as the most valuable and precious and amazing truth in all of reality? That the river of life could dry up so that from your dry, shriveled heart, living water could flow forever. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Joel to come up and... um, just going to give us a chance to respond to God and uh, very simply you may never have understood that this clearly so this morning I want to give you a chance to respond and say to Jesus come and change my heart come and meet my thirst